Seattle in the 90s. A tidal wave of iconic music roars out of this sleepy city and launches a pop culture revolution. Here's a story you haven't heard. Let the Kids Dance is a new podcast about the rise and fall of Seattle's teen dance ordinance, the law that made it illegal for young people to go to concerts. Listen to Let the Kids Dance from KUOW and the NPR Network. Hey, everybody. Welcome to KEXP. I'm Derek Mazzoni. You can find my show called Wopop every Tuesday from 7 to 10 p.m. online anytime you want it at kxp.org. I've been at the radio station for a long time. We've had up-and-coming bands. We've had legacies. We've had some pretty phenomenal performers. And I'm really stoked right now because once in a while we get some living legends. And this is this band right now. They're known as Garage A Trois. We're talking about Skerrick on saxophone. We're talking about Stanton Moore on drums. We're talking about Charlie Hunter on guitar. And it's an honor and a pleasure to have them here at KEXP. Enjoy. Thank you. 
Garage Toi on KEXP. That was awesome. Okay, bunch of questions I need to ask you guys. So I'll start with um, with anybody here. When you guys are looking at each other and you're playing and you're improvising, what exactly is the communication that's going on between you all? Like, how, how are you connecting? I've always found this to be amazing with musicians that have played together for a long time and musicians that kind of know what they're doing on a different level than just like playing three chords. What, what are you trying to say to each other? Well, for just smoke some weed, Derek. Chill out, man. Just enjoy <laughs> the music, man. I, you know, I'm, 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 I'm too old to, um, to, to just do that right now. I really want to know because it's just like you're looking at each other. So it's like... Stan's what the, got you covered. Go ahead. Are they trying to say? Well, for me, at this point, when I look at Charlie, 
and we're we just start laughing and it's like this is fun right it's like this is so easy and fun playing with each other after we've played with each other for a while and we're coming from similar tastes in music similar mm-hmm. appreciations of similar things and so when we get together it feels great we're just having a good time and just kind of sharing in that joy of the moment that's usually i'm trying not to think i'm trying to just feel and i'm also trying to lock in with charlie and just like make that connection so that we're locked and having fun and just you know kind of enjoying the moment when do you know you're locked in when my right foot feels like it's married to his base. <laughs> okay. And Charlie has an amazing sense of time. So, you know, I, I want to I wanna gel with what he's laying down. And I try to make sure that this right foot is locked in with him and in the low end of his instrument, which, which is important. That's the, the foundation of what we're doing. And if those two things aren't grounded together, then then we're off to a bad start. So I make sure that we're locked in with that. Okay. And a lot of times just, uh, you know, we all play with so many different people. And a lot of times that eye contact is, is more about, it's just the very tip of the iceberg of what's going on in the music, you know, because at any moment there's a choice that can be made. And if Stanton makes a specific choice, um, he's also telegraphing that to me musically. And a lot of times if we're connected or Skerrick, we're connected, it's, it's just the tip of the iceberg. It's the tip of that kind of, uh, that telegraphing of whatever the idea might be, you know? Okay. Okay. Well, and also it's about, uh, oh, sorry. Also, it's just about vocabulary, language. You know, everyone you play with, you're, you're going to share a lot of vocabulary and sometimes, you know, if you've been playing with people for like we have for 25 years yeah. or so, you know, there's a lot of shared vocabulary. Um, and, you know, so you kind of know what the language is and, and you're just communicating in, in that kind of way. Okay. You know? Okay. So that, go. Oh, there's some like practical stuff too. I look for, at Charlie's eyebrows for cues. <laughs> so, you know, Eyebrow if, buddy. If they go one. up a certain height, then I know it's time to shut up or the next section so there's like very practical mundane pedestrian mm. explanations okay. for eye contact as well <laughs> i've always been fascinated i've been wanting to have you guys here for a long time but i've always been fascinated about this context the concept of conversation between musicians which leads me to my next question there's a local artist who's had a movie just made about him he's the most successful instrumentalist in um, the history of recorded music. His name is Kenneth Bruce um, Gorelick. And there was a movie just came out about him. Um, Specifically, um, there was a a point where they were talking about the conversation that jazz musicians specifically have had with other musicians in the past. It's like an ongoing, could say it started with King Oliver and is working way up. Kenneth didn't grow up in that space. And so he didn't have that conversation with him, with with these other artists. So he created his own type of vibe. A lot of duress and a lot of anger about some of the ideas that this artist has had. And I've always been intrigued, like artists such as yourself, have been doing this for a long time, have a relationship with all types of music, all types of musicians living and have passed, and also have had a relationship with like New Orleans and Seattle and cities like that. How does that conversation work and continue to work um, with the music that you're playing right now, 
because you you know it's hard to categorize you, which is amazing and wonderful. But how does this history of this conversation, starting with Louis Armstrong, working up to now, how does that play? And especially you and Stanton, you're from New Orleans. You know that's like that's a different country um, living in here. How does that conversation work with what you're doing right now? Does that make sense? Yeah, and I'll I'll take it to start. You know, for me, it, it carrying on the traditions of. New Orleans and you know what what we're playing here which is black American music and you know it's so important to me to to get it from the sources or as close as you possibly can and being from New Orleans I have no excuse so you know I go and hear these great musicians like Herlin Riley and Shannon Powell and guys who have had it handed down to them from the great musicians that came before them and it was handed down to them before that so it's as simple as going out and hearing them play and talking to them and sitting with them and having conversations and talking about the music and talking about the drummers that they grew up uh checking out and hearing what records we can check those guys out on but then you know i went to breakfast with Shannon Powell a few weeks ago and you know doing things like hey man let me take you out to breakfast and let's just have that conversation conversations about where this music is coming from where they see it heading what they like about what they're seeing now what they don't like about what they're seeing now and um, you know you learn so much by putting yourself in the presence of these masters who have had it handed down to them from the masters before them. So for me personally, that's what I try to do as much as I possibly can. And I, st- I try to stay in a beginner mindset. I try to stay like I'm still 18, 19 years old and Shannon Powell and Herlin Riley are my heroes. And I go out and try to absorb as much as I possibly can from them and all the other great musicians that, that live in New Orleans. Okay, perfect. Thank you. Uh, I mean, yeah, you know, you grow up where you grow up, you have the experience you have, your narrative is, uh, you know, you know, indelibly informed by that. And, you know, I mean, I grew up in Berkeley, California, although I did spend five years living on a school bus doing the whole hippie thing when I was a little kid, among other things. Um, But the whole through line with that was my mom was part of that kind of Greenwich Village uh, folk scene in the early 60s. So her people were Mississippi John Hurt and Reverend Gary Davis. And, you know, I grew up with one of Taj Mahal's daughters and was came into contact with him living in Berkeley. See Brownie McGee play all the time. Just go down to the Kutahar store. Clarence Gatemouth Brown would be there. I'm surrounded by this music all the time. And the language of that music and people talking about that music and, you know, helping my mom set up the chairs for, uh, you know, because she was also a political activist in in East Oakland back in the 70s for a a benefit that John Lee Hooker was playing for her group of people and hanging out with John Lee Hooker when I'm 12 and seeing all that music firsthand and uh, growing up in a place like Berkeley, going to Berkeley High School with people like Dave Ellis and Peter Applebaum and Josh Redman and Will Bernard and, you know, it goes the Tower of Power guys would be playing in the park. Of course, they were older. Uh, Then hooking up with Mike Clark later and learning all of this stuff. Um, it's just a part of who you are and when you get it on the ground floor it informs your narrative and informs what that music is all about and ultimately it it put me on a trajectory to really dig back as far as I could and really fill in the blanks of that as well so you know I guess it's an unfair advantage in in a way to come up under that kind of thing and it's harder if you're a younger person now and all you really have at your disposal is kind of like the music uh 
school education, mm -hmm. you know, which I think a lot of our friends teach at, and you can learn a lot from that, but you're not going to get that visceral kind of experience that I feel is we've as musicians have been doing for thousands of years. Uh, that make any sense? Perfect. No, it's perfect. That's exactly the story. You want to add to that? Yeah. And I came up in the opposite environments that these guys did, you know, with very little contact with, you know, African-American sources. So, but my dad was a huge jazz fan here, you know, growing up in Seattle. So anytime someone came to town, I was at the concert with my dad, you know, all the, all the big bands, a lot of big bands used to tour back then in the seventies. And, uh, so I was very lucky to, you know, and my band teacher in junior high was the, the Jackson's first teacher. He's one of the only black teachers in the whole school district. <laughs> so, um, and my dad was good friends with him. And, uh, so, you know, you kind of get it where you can and you, you gravitate to it or you don't. And then I was lucky in my twenties to meet Leif Todasek, um, from uh, Freestyle Candela. And so we learned a lot about uh, Afro-Cuban music from him in Seattle and um, sp specifically Sukus. So a lot of 6-8, you know, music. And it's just um, that took me to London and uh, playing with all kinds of amazing people and uh, mostly Mose Fan Fan and Somo Somo and stuff like that. So you man you're just stumbling coming from seattle just this outpost like charlie called it once <laughs> it's a cultural outpost there you know bands wouldn't tour here i mean it's very different here now and it was just really culturally just barren wasteland you know so you know i would just there were there was always two week old village voices at the magazine stand you know i don't know why it took so long for them to get here but <laughs> And I would just go and stare at him and just see all the concert listings in the back. You know, wow, look who's playing here. So the first time I went to these cities, it was just, you know, I was just walking miles a day, you know, 20 hours a day up, going to every club I could and, and seeing Jimmy Smith and all these amazing musicians play. And, and then, um, you know, that's, you know, you're just scrapping together this haphazard, you know, experience you know trying to cobble together what you can you know there's no internet back then you can't just look up some stuff you're interested in yeah. you know you have to be there you have to go there so i was very lucky to be able to get to london go to paris live in paris for a while live in london and and live in new york and you know and just and like they said you know hang with the elders and the masters that you know that you need to study with that you need to hear and just be in the same room with when they're playing are you guys doing that now? You've been doing this at the game for a long time. Are you allowing the next musicians to come, take you to breakfast? And is that continuing, that cycle? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think of myself that way, but I feel like you're part of this continuum. And when it gets to a certain point, you have to give all of the information you have, good, bad, ugly, whatever yeah. it is, you have to give it to people who want it than the younger generation. And I, I now I've lived in Greensboro, North Carolina after living in, you know, the Bay area and then 25 years in New York area. Um, and it allows me, it's not a very expensive place. So it affords me time and time to share whatever I can with the younger people there. Uh, and it's really gratifying 
it's really gratifying to see them improve, be so excited about it. And also to just be like, get called out on my own stuff. Like whether they're doing it or I'm doing it myself, I'm like, yeah, I need a little more work in that department. You know what I mean? Okay. Perfect. Perfect. Thank you. That's awesome. So, um, one last question. Um, I don't want to talk about COVID and everything like that. I know it's been really difficult for touring musicians in general, but you guys have been at this for a long time, you know, record stores and CDs, and now we're in an age of playlists and streaming. There are like 60,000 new songs updated, uploaded every day on Spotify. You're seeing this sense of discovery. How do people now find you? Because you don't, you know, you were talking about Seattle's an outpost. You've got the internet. You can find any music in the world right now. And you have access to it pretty yeah. quickly. How do you guys bubble up in that? Is that part of the idea when you're going out and touring? Like, how does this new world work with you? Well, I, I'll, I would maybe like to let these guys answer the latter part of the question, but I'd like to just offer a little constant, context if I could. You know, um, you know, we live in this world, those of us that are lucky enough to live in a you know, wealthy, technologified country, for better and for worse. And we take a lot of these things for granted. Um, and we also tend to think about music as uh, something that during the 1970s, you know, era of, of unparalleled prosperity was how things always were and always would be. But if you start to think about music in terms of going 100 years back, going 1,000 years back, going 3,000 years back, what did that mean? And people like us, we're just these tiny little infinitesimal links on this much larger chain. Um, and so we're not ultimately that far removed from someone in a village in the Kalahari Desert who was the guy who played bones or whatever instrument that was at his disposal and, and had that narrative going at that time. We're not that far removed from, you know, uh, the whole, let's say, uh, someone in the, in the Punjab in, in like the 12th century. We're not that far removed from troubadour. We're not that far removed from court musicians. I mean, it's, it's, it's basically this human narrative that has just been passed on in one way, shape, or form and jumps an ocean. It does all these things. It hybridizes. It comes into contact with other other cultures, and it has changed and all of these things. And then the musician's place within the society has changed, you know. Um, and this is just yet another ripple in that. So instead of having, you know, like having to take a bus five miles to find the guy who knows how to play, you know, a B13 chord, you can see all of that on YouTube or wherever it is, but it loses the vast majority of its torque or its impact because uh, it becomes so commonplace. And there's so many people just making music, so to speak. But, you know, for me, for people like us, I feel like we always have an ability to hear whatever that deeper thing that can have a connection or at least thinks about the connection of a thousand years ago, hundred years ago, where we sit on that. Be in awe of that. Um, be, be really humble and really grateful that you even get the ability to wake up every day and get to come to an amazing place like this and play music, uh, get to practice every day, even get to have the hard times where you have a rough couple years, you know, be grateful for that stuff, you know, because thousands of years of people put you there. And I'll let one of you guys answer the current, uh, you know, the implications for where we're at at the moment. Perfect. Thank you. Well, these guys are the social media masters, you know. I kind of try and, you know, uh, 
watch and learn and to emulate a little bit. Is that kind of is that it's not part so much of social question? media? It's just you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm in, in terms of interacting how you get your music out, right? Yeah. It just seems like the overwhelming method right now of reaching people, you know? So it's not even the music, it's the presence. Because in, in the past, you would go to a record store and you would, oh, this is interesting, somebody would tell you, check this out, and you would buy it. Now you have access to a record store that goes up to Saturn. Like every single release just is available yeah, to so, everybody. Yeah, so if people are on the internet, like what's their majority time spent on the internet is social media, you know, and then getting, taking the little tributaries from there, right? So it's like um, Charlie's been prolific in creating um, IG videos, just giving it away, you know, giving all this music away mm -hmm. to create awareness of what he's doing over the pandemic. It was amazing, you know, watching that and, you know, gave a lot of people... And uh, inspiration. Like if I can interject, I just see that as I was a street musician in Europe for four years. I yeah. just see that as being a street musician, except I'm not getting money in my little guitar case. I'm getting like eventually, hopefully someone comes to the gig. Yeah. Maybe someone streams something and enough people stream it that there's income and, you know, it, it works that way. Okay. It's the same thing. It's just a different decade. Yeah. Okay. From, Perfect. From my perspective, it's important as an artist to show up. So you have to, as Charlie just said, he was a street musician. He showed up on the, on the street. Now he's showing up on social media a lot, right? And then for years, we've showed up at clubs. So the mediums, I think, change over time. Like when we started out, it was important to show up in a market, show up in Seattle. Three months later, show up in Seattle again. Three months later, show up in Seattle again. That's how we built our audience back then now social media as a tool it's a tool to help you show up to people and if people dig it and you connect with them and it moves them in some way then hopefully they'll be interested in what you do but the first step is to actually show up in one way or another and social media can be a great tool to uh to to reach a larger audience in other countries and other places that you may not be able to physically show up but I think that uh, the most important thing is to make yourself, put yourself out there and then figure out how to monetize it. Perfect. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you. This is great. Sorry I went deep, but I've been a fan. It's I'm good. Thanks, man. To go a little more. Garage de Trois on KEXP, where music matters. <laughs>